Let's, uh, let's begin with prayer uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord and our Rock and our Redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, before we jump into this, the, the passage that Kirk just read, I just want to just step back very briefly and, and, and just talk about how James, this, the book of James, is to me just astonishing in how it attacks or it tackles some of the most central issues in life. And it's, what's amazing is that the letter's solution, James's solutions, his answers for how we are to wrestle with the central issues of life, that when we follow those answers, when we live in the way that James is suggesting that we live, it is very loud. You know what I mean by, by loud? It's, just, it's very different. It's, it's so noticeable. When we actually embrace the way James is calling us to live, it's different. It is so different. It will make us into people who stand out, people who are incredibly different. But it's not just that it's an incredibly loud way of living. It's also an incredibly beautiful and loving and lovely way of living. It's not only makes us different, but it makes us delightful. For example, remember back in James chapter 1 where he talks about what it's like to be in the midst of crisis and and trials and tribulations. And he says that in crisis we are to be confident. Confident. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, even this past week since we've been going through James, as I have sought to follow James' counsel and to do what he says, it is amazing just the difference that it makes in my life. I mean, what is it like when we're at work or at home and a crisis happens and we don't respond with cynicism or criticism or grumbling? We respond with a confidence. You know what? God is in this. This crisis is here to complete us says James. Or think, think in chapter 2, James talks about favoritism. And we see favoritism all over the place. Favoritism in the home, favoritism in the workplace, in the classroom, on the court. We see it in, in, in athletics. Favoritism is everywhere. And we learn chapter 2, we learn that true faith forbids favoritism. And it befriends those who are forgotten. And it's just so beautiful. I see that. I see it in our church here, how, how some of you, you do that so beautifully. This past week, as, as many of you know, um, you know, um, was the one year, one year anniversary of Jan's passing. It was so beautiful. I knew Friday, when on the, the, the day of the anniversary, I knew that Jim and someone else, Jim and another brother, were actually having breakfast with Don. See, John, Don wasn't forgotten. It was beautiful. There wasn't this. There wasn't. It wasn't about hanging out with the people who were important. The big, the people were a big deal. It was about being with people who who the, the world might forget. That's what true faith does. It forbids favoritism and it befriends the forgotten. Or think of the ways that uh, Barb Hall is, 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 um, is brought to a Thursday morning prayer. Someone picks her up. Someone drops her off. She's not forgotten. There's no favoritism. There's no, there's no regarding one person as greater or lesser than the other. That's different. That's so incredibly different. Or think again in James chapter 3. We talked about it the last couple of weeks. The, how, how James calls us to use our tongues how we, we learn about how powerful our words can be, that our words, that the, we learn about the power of our words to kill, but also the power of God's word to create. And we, we, see, we, we saw that our words can have real impact. See, when we, fall, when, we, when we walk in the way of James, we live differently. 
Our words, instead of being words that kill, words that harm, are words of confession. We'll, we'll see that this morning, or more this morning. When, you, when we confess, when you're in the workplace, and, and you, you blow it, right? You, you, maybe you say something sharply, maybe you, maybe you criticize someone, maybe whatever it is, you don't meet a deadline, and you own it. You confess, that was, that was on me, that was my fault. That's loud. It's different. Or when we use words of compassion in the workplace, or in the classroom, or at home, words of compassion, that's, it's loud, it's different. Or when we use words of courage, the way that we, we actually stand for something, we take a stand, we stand up against the bully at school. Or at work, we take a stand against some potential, potentially unethical uh, um, a path or, or plan that, that's laid before us. We have words of courage. And that, that people, people sit up, their eyebrows are raised, jaws drop, people notice. When we walk in the path that James sets out for us, our lives are different, they're loud. And today's topic is no different at all. This morning, we're gonna look, take a brief look at conflict, as, as Kirk read for us. How are Christians to respond to conflict? And how we are to respond to conflict is incredibly loud. It is different, so different from how the world responds to conflict. I don't know if you think back to your family of origin. We all had different ways in which our families responded to conflict. For some, it was just, it was all about fighting. I mean, it was about who was loudest, who was strongest. It was like, it was just regularly World War III. You just fought it out until people were just exhausted. In other homes, like everything was swept into the carpet. No one raised their voice, not a harsh word, because nothing was ever addressed. And the show just kept right on going, and it was one big charade, one, one big sort of pretense that, hey, it's all good, We're, I'm okay, you're okay, and things simply are not okay. See, conflict can be handled in all different kinds of ways, but I want you to hear, this is what I want you to hear this morning. Conflict, according to James, is not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. Conflict is not an obstacle, but an opportunity. In fact, there's one, there, are, there are, I usually do, when I do premarital counseling, I'll usually do three, maybe four sessions. I don't do a lot of sessions because most of the time prior to marriage, most, 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 um, most, um, most couples prior to marriage aren't, they're not really in a place yet to receive counsel. <laughs> they're pretty confident that things are going to be just fine. They're going to be great. No, you know, I, I, so I'll sit down, I'll talk to them about, about peacemaking, about conflict resolution. And they're like, we're good. We got this. But it's one of the most important things to learn in a marriage is how to, be, to reconcile. One of the most important things to learn in a church is how to reconcile. And to recognize that conflict, again, is not an obstacle, but with the gospel is an opportunity. That conflict plus the gospel equals intimacy. Let me say that again. Conflict plus the gospel equals intimacy. You know, some of the most beautiful ways in which God's people are brought together, some of the beautiful ways that, that marriages grow is actually through conflict. We just saw Nancy, uh, Nancy Meyer and Nancy Neff share how they are now better friends because there was conflict and they addressed it through the power of the gospel. So let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at the passage here. What, what we see, uh, James uh, assumes a world in which everyone is always taking sides. 
They're always taking sides. As humans, we find it almost impossible not to take sides. Whether it's in sports, you turn on the TV, oh, which side am I going to be on? Whether it's in politics, which candidate do I like best? Or in personal relationships, we are so ready to take sides. We're so ready to get into an argument. Growing up, I can remember my, I would, uh, my grandmother, when we moved her from Seattle to our, our, home, our hometown in Billings, Montana, in which she lived in a retirement facility, and I would go get her twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, we'd go get her, and she would come over for, uh, for dinner. My mom would be making dinner. And almost as soon as my grandmother got in the door, it was a typical mother-daughter relationship where my mom would say, it's white, and my grandmother would say, it's black. And they were off just arguing the whole evening. It was just constant. It's, there was always sides being taken. And, and that's what we do. So again, if there's one thing that we can expect in life, it's conflict. We just love to take sides. And again, James just assumes this. And he wants to talk about how to solve it. And his solution is twofold. He says, listen to this. He says, to stop taking sides, we have to do two things. To stop taking sides, we must, one, take God's side, and two, take ourselves off God's seat. Take ourselves off God's judgment seat. Let me say that again. To stop taking sides, we must take God's side and take ourselves off God's seat. Let's look at this. So let's follow James' logic here. Look at the passage. His logic is incredibly insightful. He begins with a question and then answers it with another question. Look in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? That's an interesting question. You ever wonder, why do we keep arguing? Why do we keep fighting? Why, why is there so much conflict? He answers with a question, don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Or that is, that battle within your members. James is asking, why are there conflicts among us? And his answer is, because there are conflicts within us. He says there are desires that are actually battling within us. That is, the wars among us, the wars between us and among us as a church or as a community or as two individual persons, the wars among us actually come from wars that are within us. And it explains more fully in verses 2 and 3. You desire, so you hear these wants, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do, not, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, on your, again, on your desires. See, the reason we're always, we're, all, we're always taking sides, that is to say, the reason, if you will, that, is that our insides are always taking sides. Let me break it down. James says, why are we at war? Because of our wants, our desires. And it's not just that you and I are at war because we have different wants. I want this and you want that. It's even more profound. James says our wants that we have, the wants that I have, are actually disagreeing and at war within me. He says your desires battle within you. I don't know if you can recognize that. But how often within us, there's, there's, we are a deeply conflicted people. And that, that conflictedness leads to uh, conflict with others. And James's view of human relationships here is very, in a sense, cynical. He says, man, conflict's inevitable and it's going to be bad. I can remember years ago talking to a doctor. He was in a relationship. Uh, he wasn't married. He was with a, a lady. They were, they were dating and they'd been dating for six or seven years. 
And he said, yeah, I feel like we probably got it best another year or two. He's like, just, it's, just, it's just not going to work. He says, they never work. He says, but in most relationships, I don't care if it's a marriage or anything, they're just not going to last because in the end, you break up. You just can't seem to get along. James pictures us humans, listen to this, he pictures us humans as walking contradictions, as walking war zones. You and I are a walking war zone of wants. I want this, I want that. And all these wants that within us are pulling in different directions. And it's these wants that are all together, that are all together incredibly willing to wage war. Again, look, look at verse 2 again. You desire, but you do not have. You know, words, you desire for yourself something, but you don't have it. So you kill. And again, he's not, necessarily, he's, not, he's not primarily speaking literally. He's talking about the way that we can so viciously go after people. And it may not be, maybe that's not our thing. We don't literally just actually attack people with our words and verbally abuse them. We may actually be very passive and just simply withdraw. We totally withdraw and we give them what? The silent treatment. And, and basically we can say, you know what? You're dead to me. You're dead to me. You covet, that is you desire, you desire things from others, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. And what's more than that, even though our wants, even though our wants are so willing to wage war, our wants won't ask God for what they want. Look at verse 2, the second, the second half of verse 2 and verse 3. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. I read that verse this week, and it was just so convicting. So I sit there and I think, all the things I want, I never ask God for them. Don't even bother but the reason I don't ask God often is because I know there are actually things that he doesn't want me to have. Verse, verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive. He's not going to give it to you because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, all of this is automatic. James just assumes, listen to this, James just assumes that these wants, these desires, will have their way. He assumes that our wants will win why does he do that? Why does he do that? James tells us. Because that's the way of the world. The way of the world is to have our wants. Listen to this. Is to have our wants have their way. The way of the world is to say, you know, what I want is first. What I want is most important. And the result, says, says James, is war. We are always taking sides. I'm going to listen first and foremost to what I want and whatever the, all those wants are, and you and I, are, as a result, are going to be at war. We're always going to be taking sides. So in other words, let me say it this way. The fact that we're always taking sides shows that we're actually on the world's side. We're actually looking, to, listening to the counsel, the wisdom of the world. Look at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He's saying, look, when you make wants the number one thing in your life, when you make your personal desires the number one thing in your life, that is the way of the world. And the way of the world is utterly in opposition to the way of God. The only way to stop taking sides, says James, is to take God's side. And he's going to explain what that means. He's going to speak here of a God who eagerly desires to have us at his side. 
Look at verse 5. It's notoriously difficult to translate, actually. I'm, I'm going to go with the following. You'll see, I think, if you have your NIV or the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll see a, um, a footnote that I'll, that I'll basically follow instead. He says, Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to dwell in us envies intensely? He's saying, look, God has placed His Spirit inside you, and that Spirit is jealous for you. It wants to be, it wants you, it wants fellowship with you, it wants alignment with you, that God's Spirit longs to be um, at, at one with you, to be on, on its side, if you will. And so he says God has placed his spirit in us and he, he longs for us. He envies for us. He cares for us. And so he's saying, look, don't you see? To follow your wants is to follow the way of the world. And the way of the world stands in opposition to God, a God who longs for us, a God who has placed his spirit in us and, and, and longs to know us. And, and, in, and in response to that, look at what he says and again in verse 5 and 6. We, as we find ourselves in opposition to God, in alliance with the world, he says these words, but he gives us more grace. That is what the scripture says. God opposes the proud, but gives favor to the humble. Now, look, get this. Behind the warfare, underneath the warfare, are wants. And underneath those wants is a world that, that, that salutes, that, that prioritizes, that idolizes those wants. And underneath that worldly wisdom is exactly what James says here. A pride. I want what I want when I want it. See, I'm so sure that what I want is right. What I want is best. In the moment when, I am in, when I'm arguing with Sarah, when I'm arguing with the kids, whatever it may be, in the midst that I am so sure of myself. And James says, in that moment, God opposes you. He opposes us. God opposes the proud. But here's the, here's the good news. But he shows favor to the humble. He shows favor to the humble. We take his side. How? Look at verses 7 through 10. By, by submitting to him, by surrendering ourselves. Verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Now listen to what it says here. He says, in the midst of conflict, what are you supposed to do? Submit yourself to the Lord. This is what it looks like. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. He's speaking of both external and internal cleansing. Hands, that refers to the, our behaviors. Hearts refers to our inner attitudes. He's saying the whole of us is to be washed or cleansed. That when I'm in the midst of conflict, what I need is a bath. The inside and out of me, I need to stop and be cleansed. And he says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is he saying? He's saying, stop pretending like everything's okay. In the midst of conflict, I'm, I'm so sure that I'm fine. And he's saying, stop, realize. And your laughter, you know, the joy... It's all fake. It's all a fake piece. It's all a charade. 
And he says, you need to stop and you need to actually grieve. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves and he will lift you up. See, we take God's side when we submit to him and stop pretending that everything's okay. When we, when we say, you know what, my wants are out of control. My wants are following a worldly wisdom that is so sure of itself, so proud. So he calls us to stop taking sides. How? By, only by taking his side. We must stop. I mean, and no, not only, not, not only, let me say that again here. We, we stop taking sides first when we, when, we, uh, when we take his side, but second, when we stop taking his seat. Look at verses 11 and 12. He admonishes them. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. And anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Why does he have to remind them there's only one lawgiver? There's only one judge? <laughs> Because I like to be the lawgiver. I want to be the judge. I want to give the rules and, tell, and let you know that you've broken them. You have broken my law, and I am here to judge you for it. That's what conflict is so often about. It's about the fact that you have broken my rules, that you have inconvenienced me. That I have wants that I have, and you haven't, you, haven't, you haven't obeyed those wants, and therefore you are guilty. But look at that last verse, that last line of, of, of verse 12. He says, but you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? So what does this look like? Let me tell you just a few minutes here. What does it look like just to take God's side? It's saying, first of all, it is questioning all that we want and being willing to pursue God's way. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. I want you to see these beautiful, this beautiful counsel. This is what it looks like to take God's side in conflict. In Matthew chapter 7, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and we see such wisdom that Jesus gives us, such strong admonition that he has for us. Again, this is Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, it's on page 832 of your pew Bible. Again, this is just such, such incredible wisdom. Not a worldly wisdom, but a wisdom from the one who welcomes us. Listen to this, verse 1, chapter 7, page 832. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now listen, what is, what is Jesus saying the first thing we do in conflict is? It's to get the plank out of our own eye, to self-examine, to look at ourselves, say, how am I contributing to this conflict? That goes so far. When you have two people who are actually willing to stop and self-critique, self-examine, self-reflect, 
To stop and say, you know what, I, I really, to, to really listen to the person and say, you know, I don't, agree, I don't agree with everything you're saying, but you know, there's real truth to what you're saying. Or maybe they're saying something with really bad motive. They're attacking you. They want to destroy you. And they're actually, there's actually, there's actually some truth to what they're saying. You can be like, you know what, I'm going to own that. I really am. I think that's actually true. There's a certain, there's a conflict biblically, uh, or a, a conflict addressed in terms of the gospel is a, is, a, is a conflict that is addressed first and foremost with a willing self-evaluation, a self-critique. Now turn, turn to the right here to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus' words here are so simple and yet they are so profound. Verse 15, this is page 844, chapter 18, verse 15. These are words that can bring such life and blessing, and they are so counterintuitive, so countercultural. Again, page eight forty-four, chapter eighteen, beginning of verse fifteen. Jesus says, "If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you." Now, I don't know about you, when my brother or sister sins, the last thing I want to do is go talk to them, or I don't want to go talk to them. I want to go destroy them. I either want to fight or I want to flee. Or sometimes I just want to fake it. But Jesus is saying here very simply, your brother or sister sins. You stop and you go. You go humbly. Look in my, you know, again, is there a plank in my own eye? You go gently. You go full of hope. You're there, you're, you're there truly concerned. It's not about how much you've been wronged and how much they've wronged you. It's about your concern for them. You care about them. And you're going to go and you're sharing, and you're going to go humbly in a way that says, you know what, here's what I know. This is so important. You don't go assuming that you, you don't go assuming, uh, you, know, you don't come as those who have already arrived at a conclusion. I know exactly what you did, and I'm here to prove it. You go saying, hey, look, this is, this is what I saw, this is what I've heard, this is what I know, but... There's maybe stuff that I haven't, I've missed. Like, fill me in. Like, I want to hear from you. And so you're actually suspending judgment. If your brother or sister sins, I think they sin. You go and you talk to them. And what does he say? Just between the two of you. You don't go and talk to anyone else. You don't go gossip first. You don't, whatever. You, sit, you, you don't sit there and mull on it forever. See, here's what happens. This is so important. Some of us, we, with someone, someone will wrong us. And we're like, ah, I'm just going to irritate me, get frustrated. Then we stop. We do, we do nothing. And we just leave it. And then they do it again. And we get more irritated. Uh, then we, we still don't do anything. And what happens is, this, is it builds and it builds and it builds. And what happens is we never give the other person an opportunity to have their day in court. We never give them a chance to actually just respond. Because guess what? We may have misunderstood. It's one of the most tragic things that can happen. You go and you, you're so sure that this person wronged you. Well, did they? Did they really? Maybe, how would you ever know? Because you never got a chance. I mean, all you got to do is reverse the roles. If someone were so upset with you, if someone were so upset with you, wouldn't you want a chance just to be able to say, well, wait, hold on, time out. Let me just, I'd like to hear from you. I want to hear what your concerns are. So I can, I mean, not only say disagree, but at least hear them. And if someone will be like, yeah, that's true. There was a way to hold on, it's more complicated. Or you missed out on this piece right here. You get your day in court to talk. But, it, but again, it begins by this risk of going to a brother and sister and actually t sitting down and talking with each other, just like Nancy Meyer and Nancy Neff did. Wasn't that a beautiful story? So we see here in Matthew 18, if your brother and sister in sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. 
And if they listen to you, it says you have won them over. Isn't that beautiful? I love that line. If, you, they, if they listen to you, you have won them over. Verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you, if you can't work it out, you get someone else involved. And you don't, you don't, you're not calling to get reinforcements. You're not like, hey, um, this bow's over here. Doesn't, I mean, they hurt me and they're, they're just they're idiots. And, and just, I want you to agree with me so we can come and gang up. No, no, no. You're actually going to go to find a second or third party. And that third party is going to be someone the other person respects. Someone who's truly a neutral party who has wisdom. You're going to them and saying, hey, look, um, there's a situation over here and like I'm concerned about this person and I want the best for them and but maybe I'm seeing it wrong maybe I maybe I'm missing something because we can't seem to agree and so what I'm gonna can you come and help us talk about this and see if I'm wrong maybe they're right or maybe who knows but help me further insight and so that that second part that excuse me that excuse me the third party is there to actually help bring about peace and reconciliation in the situation and then verse, uh, verse um, 17 says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. That is, to, usually starts out with the church leadership. You go and you say, hey, look, uh, I've talked to this person. I brought someone else in, and, and they're still not, they don't, we're, we're both relatively sure that this is the situation, but now we need, we need leaders. We need persons who, have, who do this more regularly. We need, we need persons who care, who, who are in the business of caring and loving persons who are struggling. And, and you go and you do it. But, but notice here, and throughout this whole section, verse 15 through uh, 17, what's so important is the idea of listening. Of listening. Again, Christians are to be those who listen. If I were to ask you a question right now, tell, talk to me. About, if you were to go and talk to the persons who know you the best, and you were to say to them, what kind of listener, how well do I listen? What would they say? So at the end of the day, Christians are to be those listening is code for willingness to change. And Christian, listen to me. When we refuse to listen, when we refuse to change, we are voting ourselves off the island of Christianity. That's exactly what Matthew said, but Jesus goes on to say here. That anyone who refuses to listen, that they themselves must be removed from the church, treated as if they were a pagan or a tax collector, because they have stopped listening. So do you, do you see the, the, the practicality of what James is speaking of here? He's saying, listen, the reason that you're always taking sides, the reason that you're always in conflict, is that you're not taking God's side. You've sided with the world. A worldly wisdom that worships what it wants, that, that always wants what it wants when, when it wants it, and is unable to hear, that is based in pride. But it, it is a humility, a beautiful humility that we find here that is truly so encouraging. Listen to this. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. You know, I was so encouraged. I was so uh, I was, well, I was encouraged at a number of levels, but I was so grateful that both Nan, both Nancy Meyer and Nancy Neff would come and share this morning. It is so beautiful. This is you know that this actually happens. A good shepherd, persons come to me. They have issues. They say, "Hey, what do I do here?" And I say, "Hey, here's counsel. Here's how you go about reconciling with that person." 
And, and on the whole, I can, I can really set you up for success. I do this all the time. But learning, learning how to reconcile, learning how conflict can bring about intimacy is one of the most liberating, encouraging, life-giving skills to have. And it happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, we are free by the gospel. We are free by the gospel to confess our sins. And it is confession of sin more than anything else that leads to real intimacy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you such thanks for the, the beauty, the importance, the centrality of, of James's message today. Father, how quick we are to be proud, to defend ourselves. But we even now, Father, we humble ourselves before you. We do, we humble ourselves, begging that you would, would reign over the wants, reign over the desires in our hearts that just rage. Oh, Father, I pray that we would name our wants, name our desires, and deconstruct them so that we can see that they are so dangerous, so unfulfilling, so unsatisfying. And Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would reign over us to reprioritize, to rearrange, to bring order to our chaotic insides that we indeed might worship you in a way that is pleasing, that is peaceable, that is so sweet that the world may see, Father, that the world may see how we handle conflict in a way that is truly glorifying to you and for the good of everyone involved. Lord, I pray that Good Shepherd would be a church of peacemakers. I really do, Lord. I just, I beg you. Lord, I pray so much that instead of gossiping, instead of slandering, instead of keeping it all in, instead of assuming the, the worst of others, instead of simply just letting, letting matters, letting issues, letting struggles simply build up and build up within ourselves, that we would be willing to follow Jesus' counsel, to submit ourselves, to surrender ourselves, to take Jesus' side and, st and stop the, pre the pretense, stop the charade, and actually go in humility, in brokenness, in kindness and concern, and talk with our brothers and sisters, believing that you will show up, believing that conflict is actually an opportunity, an opportunity for intimacy. Lord Jesus, you did not, you did, you went all the way down for us. In the name of love, you reconciled us to you. You shed your blood in the name of peace for persons like us who are so good at conflict. Thank you for the peace that you have given you. Thank you for the power of the cross, the power of the cross to reconcile, to forgive, to enable us to call you Father. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.